I was so tired of having like the big payday and then living on a shoestring for two months. You know, I was really all about that stable paycheck. And that was what had led me to work crazy hours and study as hard as I could all through college because I just wanted to be out of the stressful existence of having the pressure of not knowing. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. I'm Cody, and I could not be doing this right now without my awesome co-host, Justin. What's up, man? I'll just, uh, you know, burning up the credit card, buying flights. Luckily, mostly points. Finally got the, the FinCon flight, so get ready. Heck yeah. See you there, Rumi. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm currently chilling in Seattle with previous guest on this show, Jay from Millennial Boss's house. So that's where I'm recording this from. It's pretty cool. Awesome community we got here. But Justin, definitely enough about me and you. We want to introduce someone who's really going to bring a racket to this podcast. And (laughs) I mean that quite literally. Justin, what do you think about the episode? Well, I have to say it's our first professional athlete we're bringing on. So that was a pretty cool angle. But you know, I don't think we should give away her story. Let's Sunny take it away. Yeah, so my parents came over in, in the 70s and 80s, and they came from parts of India that where they were really, really poor. And they came over here, put themselves through school, and they were always very frugal due to their upbringings. And I think that really, that really passed on to me. They always worked really hard for everything that they had, and we weren't financially stable. You know, I have many memories of like our apartment getting broken into, and we were on like social assistance and. We just needed a lot of help at that time, but they were able to work their way out of it. Even once our financial situation became more stable, the need to save was still always emphasized because those experiences don't really ever leave you. So I was very much exposed to to saving and being frugal from the time I was very young. And that is something that has really served me well and that I'm thankful for these days. Okay, Sunny. So you held on to this frugality, but what age was it that you first started making money where you could kind of actually use that frugality to your advantage? Well, that's actually a funny question because when I was 14, I started playing tennis professionally. I had been training for a long time and that was when I actually started earning an income. However, being so young, I wasn't able to spend it until I was in my later teens and I started supporting my career on my own. At that point, I had to take care of everything, like the travel, logistics, PR, what have you, training. And I was paying for everything through my prize money. And at that time, it was very difficult because I was raised and kind of bred, I guess, for lack of a better term, (laughs) to just be focused on my sport, you know? So I didn't really, even though I knew how to save, I didn't really have much of a financial acumen. I didn't know how to, I didn't know truly how to budget. I didn't know how to invest, but I had to, I had to learn all of that really quickly. And it was a tough lesson to learn because like, if you think about all the expenses that you have, when you go on vacation, like the hotel, the airfare, the ground transportation, every, all of those little things, those are all the expenses that I had day in, day out while traveling and playing tennis professionally. And so because of that, and because I was supporting myself on my own prize money, things got tough pretty quickly with the way the tour works, unless you're kind of like on the big screen and playing the big matches, etc. 
you're kind of breaking even just trying to make things work until you can make the big dollars. And so sometimes for me, that meant staying at a friend's house two hours away and having to take a public bus back and forth to the courts to compete or running out of money at a tournament and then finding like a stash of 20 bucks in my wallet just so I could buy dinner before my flight home, that sort of thing. So when I first got to the point where I could control my own money, I had a lot of hard lessons to learn right away. So one thing I'm curious about, I can imagine a lot of people listening will think, I think when people hear that you were a 14-year-old playing tennis professionally, they have these visions of country clubs and private lessons, which may not equate to this idea of growing up on the lower end of the income scale. So I'm just wondering, what were some of the barriers of entry as someone who came from that background into getting into something like tennis? Or what are some of the misconceptions as as far as someone being able to have access to the progression in professional sport like tennis, even if they are coming from a poorer background? Yeah, that's a great question. So the perceptions aren't far off. Tennis equipment is very expensive. There is a need for private lessons. There is a need for travel. There's a need for specialized training. That being said, if you show promise at an early age, you can get scholarships and financial aid to kind of help you through it. And that's how I was able to get a lot of my training. What a lot of academies will do is they will offer a child with a lot of potential, like a scholarship, but then in return, they will use them for all of their advertising. So that was something that I was used for. And that was like my situation for a long time when I was I think it was like 11, 12, 13. I was like top in the country in the U.S. within my age group. And so I never paid a cent for training. In return, my name and my image was used in all the advertising and marketing for the academy and the coach who trained me. So I don't even have like a rough estimate of what a 14 to 18 year old professional tennis player makes. Like, could you just enlighten us a little bit on that? Like, if you were breaking even, I mean, are you making like five grand a month? Are you making one grand a month being frugal? I'd just love to hear more about that. <laughs> that's that's the thing. And that's what led to a lot of stress for me. It is highly variable. So there will be weeks where you can bank ten to 20000 And then there are weeks where you'll bank 100 to 200 bucks until you get to maybe three months later and you have another big event. So it really depends when you're traveling 30 to 40 weeks a year that can cost at least $100,000 if you're doing it. Oh, wow. Yeah. If you're doing it kind of cheaply with with an awareness of how to save money, et cetera. And that's not even taking into account the cost of a coach. So if you have a coach traveling with you, which most people do, which is ideal, you have to have the coach's salary, which is usually close to around six figures if they're good. And then all of their expenses, which is like that 100K maybe I mentioned times two. So- it is a very expensive endeavor. And as you transition from being that, you know, the 14 to 18 year old into starting to look at college, does that make you ineligible for things like scholarships since you were already a professional? <laughs> yes. If I had finished school as a child. So to answer your question, if you sign a management contract or accept a certain amount of money that does disqualify you from certain scholarships, but you also need obviously some basic level of education, unfortunately or fortunately for me, because Clearly, like things have kind of ended up just fine. I dropped out of school after sixth grade in order to train professionally full time. And I was supposed to be in school. I was supposed to be teaching myself. But I mean, I was a 14 year old training eight hours a day. I'm not going to crack open a book after that. I didn't care. <laughs> you know? 
But yeah, that's that that can be tough. And that was a tough situation for me when I retired and started to go back to school was figuring out how to pay for it because I no longer had access to the scholarships and the other the other parts that would that would make it a little bit more financially feasible or so I thought. So this is really interesting to me. So how long did you play tennis professionally? And when did you actually start getting back into school after that huge gap of no learning? <laughs> Nine years. I played professionally for nine years, started at 14, retired at the ripe old age of 23. That was in <laughs> April of 2009. Yeah, so it was almost 10 years ago, which is kind of crazy now that you think about it. But yeah, and it was crazy to be going back to school after spending so much time away from any sort of educational environment and having left it for so long. It was just such a foreign environment to enter, and I was convinced that I would fail every class which thankfully didn't happen. <laughs> okay, so you're at age 23 and you've stopped playing professional tennis. Do you have an idea of where you were sitting financially, like a ballpark net worth after the nine years of playing tennis? I do, and it wasn't pretty. I had had a relatively successful career. I played a lot of the Grand Slams that you see on TV, the US Open, Wimbledon, that sort of thing, was in the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. That being said, as I, as I mentioned before, unless you are playing consistently at the big matches, you're not necessarily making the big money. So my net worth was actually pretty low. I only had probably a couple grand in the bank and was trying to start over and was working like three or four jobs and just trying to make ends meet and get a financial cushion built up so that I could go back to college and, and kind of start over. So I think this is a perfect transition. So before we had the interview, we just put a feeler out on Twitter, just giving a little bit about your background and ask people if they had questions, just trying to field some things from our audience. And Tim from Life of the Better was asking, and now I kind of have an idea of why so many professional athletes are broke. Because like from what you're saying, from age 11 or 12 on, you didn't have a formal education until you were 23 when you only had a few grand in net worth. Like that puts you at a huge disadvantage. So I'd love if you could talk about how other people fall into that trap and how you overcame it. I think I overcame it because I didn't have any money to spend. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, when you're growing up in that lifestyle, it's not even just about having no education. There's, there's really very little awareness of how the outside world operates. My schedule for many years was get up in the morning, go eat your breakfast, go train, stop, eat, nap, train, stop, eat, nap, train, go to bed. And that is all you know. There's no time for any sort of education, let alone financial literacy, which I mean, isn't really a strong suit of most people anyway, right? So yeah, <laughs> so that's really how it happens. And financial literacy isn't really important because you're sold on this dream that you're going to be making millions of dollars. Why on earth do you need a budget? <laughs> so that's kind of how that happens. And it's an interesting dynamic and one that that should probably be addressed. At what point during your career do you think you had an understanding of, okay, you know, I'm not going to be doing this forever or for that long, or this is not going to be my stable career? Because I think that's what gets a lot of athletes. They don't understand their own expiration date as an athlete. I think my expiration date was highly correlated to the expectations I had for myself. So I'm very much of a type A personality. I want to succeed and, and succeed greatly in anything that I do. Living the life that I was living and pursuing my professional dreams in the way that I was doing it 
was very challenging. And I really didn't think that it allowed me to fully reach my potential because I didn't have money for a coach. I didn't have money for a trainer. I couldn't really travel to the tournaments that I needed to travel to, to maximize my ranking and to maximize my prize money. I was really relegated to what I could afford and to kind of catch as catch can and make do with hitting partners and that sort of thing. So after a while, that got really frustrating, you know, when you're seeing people who you were better than, who you could be doing as well as starting to do better when this is your entire life and this is the only thing that you care about, you know? So after seeing that happen for a couple years, that's when I started to kind of realize, okay, I have to be realistic. I am not going to be happy settling for less than what I think I'm capable of. I'm also not likely that I will reach that full potential. Earlier, I mentioned that I retired in 2009, and that was really relevant to my career because the prior year, that year that I went to the Olympics and had other big wins, that was my best year to date. I was doing on no money and just being scrappy and getting by. And I was knocking on the door to where I thought I could be, but my body was breaking down. I couldn't get the treatment that I needed. There were just so many things that I could not handle because I didn't have the finances to do it. And I didn't see that changing because I could see the recession around the corner. People, I couldn't find sponsors. People didn't have the liquidity Hmm. to want to sponsor an athlete. Like that's highly discretionary, right? So with all of those pieces in play, that was when my expiration date became very real and something that I really had to consider seriously. Well, I got to say, a lot of people in our audience are aiming for early retirement. And I think you're the earliest retiree we've ever interviewed <laughs> at age 23. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I went back to work. <laughs> oh. Okay. So this is where I want to kind of hop in. So when you were 23, did you go to an undergraduate degree or a master's degree or just what was your whole process there? And how did you find a university? I only had a GED at the time, which is the equivalency diploma for high school. And I didn't attend school after sixth grade. I didn't finish junior high. So the only place that would accept me was my local community college, right? So I had to take like six months of remedial classes, the things that you take when you're 16 (laughs) at the age of 23, you know, and have my algebra, have all of those, pass all those requirements. And I spent about a year at the local, maybe a year and a half at a local community college. And that was actually a really good financial decision. It was really, really affordable. It didn't have the prestige of the private university that I ended up going to through, and I would attended that university through um, academic scholarships and need-based grants, but it got me from point A to point B for a short period of time and allowed me to save a ton of money. And no one knows when they look at my diploma that I only had three years at my more prestigious, better institution with a better brand name. So that actually turned out to be a blessing. So you graduate from the prestigious school at age 27? Yes. And I'm then, glad you're keeping track. <laughs> I like keeping a timeline. And then so you're 27 years old. What's next? Do you immediately get a job upon graduation or just what's the whole situation there? Oh, gosh, yes. I wanted a job. I needed a job. I was so tired of having like the big payday and then living on a shoestring for two months. You know, I was really all about that stable paycheck. And that was what had led me to work crazy hours and study as hard as I could all through college because I just wanted to be out of the stressful existence of having the pressure of not knowing where my next meal was coming from, you know, and after I retired, I kind of had like this, this internal moment, you know, kind of like I can gone with the wind when Scarlett O'Hara is like, we'll never be hungry again, (laughs) you know, 
But <laughs> after I retired, I was like, I am never, ever being broke again. That time has passed. That allowed me to pursue my passion. But now that that is over, we have to be real. We have to be financially stable. Let me get my life together. So yes, I got a really good job at this large multinational firm and I was in their management training program. They were going to pay for grad school. You know, it was just, I thought everything was great. And it really was for a while. You know, I really loved, as I said, getting that stable paycheck, knowing what was coming in, not having to worry or stress about it. It was lovely. But as things, as things turn out, you know, things that seem like they're going to be great, they kind of lose their shine sometimes. And it's, things are still good. I wouldn't say that it's a terrible place to be, but after time, you start to learn that there are realities to situations and negatives to the positives. And so have you been there for about four years? So at that company, I was there for about two and a half. Okay. And then I found another, another job outside of that industry. And I'm working there now currently. Okay. So you're in like a management type position or just what exactly was that last job? So it was a management training program. So it was a rotational program that would expose you to different roles. I'm in finance. So that program would expose you to different types of finance. You'd spend a year in each rotation. The rotation could be both in terms of geography you would change. You could change like the business line you were in. You could change the finance specialty, there is highly variable. And then there was also a lot of leadership training, a lot of exposure to upper management that would allow you to accelerate your progress through the company. Okay. And so then you transitioned into, you said a different industry, and I know that you're a financial analyst now, correct? Yes. I work in corporate financial planning. So something that really impresses me about you is that that steady paycheck isn't enough. You kind of immersed yourself into the world of passive income, financial independence, specifically real estate. So I'd love if you could kind of talk about how you got into your mindset there, and then we'll dive into the actual tangible things that you started to do. Sure. So thanks to my frugal background and my need to have the financial cushion, et cetera, I worked all through college, kept working really hard, kept saving through the first couple of years out of college. And so I had a little nest egg built up and I wasn't, even though I'm in finance, I wasn't super savvy when it came to investments and retiring early and that sort of thing. But those ideas started to kind of bubble up in my mind as I got more familiar with like peers and colleagues and hearing them talk about like, oh, you know, this is, this is a tough job. I wish I could work closer to home. I wish I could have a more flexible work schedule. I wish I could do something that I was more passionate about, but I can't. And I can't because I can't afford to take the time off to find something else that I'm passionate about. I can't afford to take the pay cut to do something that I feel like would really make a difference both in my life and in the world. And so when I was hearing that, I was what I was really hearing was like, okay, I want better options that will make me happy, but I can't because of my current financial situation. And so that kind of got me thinking, you know, I wasn't, I still, I hadn't acted on it. And then I came across actually Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I read the book and started thinking about, okay, like, how does this work? How do most people approach financial literacy? How do we use debt and taxes to kind of further our goals? And that's when I kind of started thinking about real estate. I still hadn't hit FI or hadn't thought of my thought process hadn't hit FI. But as I was looking at real estate, I came across this podcast called Bigger Pockets. Started listening to it and realized, you know, through the vehicle that is real estate investments, there is the opportunity to do something really 
much bigger than I had anticipated. And being an athlete who wanted to grace every magazine and win every tournament, thinking big wasn't really a stretch for me, you know, like I love to dream big and I'm ambitious. So that was just a good fit to think about what could be done that most people I feel like around me wouldn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I feel like that athlete mindset kind of makes you just drive, drive, drive and until you drop, kind of like <laughs> <laughs> drive till you drop. And yeah, and just swing for the fences. Cause I think a lot of athletes have that, like, I can do this, I can do this massive thing mentality. A hundred percent. Which could be good or could, could be bad. In your case, it seems like it's fared pretty well for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are definitely, there are definitely characteristics you develop as an athlete that are very helpful if you're, if you're shooting for FI or really shooting for any goal that is out of the ordinary or difficult. You know, there's a, the sacrifice, the grit, the work ethic that just comes naturally with being an athlete that you always need, especially, I mean, with real estate, it's especially applicable. Like building passive income takes a lot of front end work to educate yourself and to find the properties and get the work done and all the systems in place, you know, and unless you have like that ability to delay gratification and keep that long-term perspective, you're going to get frustrated because your property manager lied to you and there's another leak and all of a sudden the furnace went out and it's really can be one thing after another. But if you're tough and you can keep that long-term perspective, which as I said, is really, is really something that's bred into athletes, then it can be applied well to financial independence and real estate investing. So exactly when did you get into real estate? What was your first foray into it? And then what does that portfolio look like now? So I started researching real estate investing and spending every spare minute that I had studying, I think about like two and a half to three years ago. And keep in mind, I'm also working a full-time job and I am in a MBA program. <laughs> so also trying to save money now after while paying for grad school and having the time and the brain space to kind of take on new material that can be challenging but it took about two years to to study and to learn as much as I could and starting this year this year 2018 is when I started to actually find properties to invest in my first property was I closed April of this year and since then I have now closed on three properties which equates to five rental units. The last two I think I closed on about two months ago. So four of the five have been tenanted. There are people living in them, paying my mortgages. I'm still working on stabilizing the property. because Unfortunately, sometimes when you buy older properties that have sat vacant for a while, things just pop up, as I said before, that require more expenses. But if you buy properly and you know how to run the numbers, it works out. All right. So, Sonny, people who are listening don't know that all three of us are located around the Boston area, but where exactly did you buy these said properties? <laughs> Thousands of miles away. <laughs> <laughs> Having not seen them in person once before the purchase, I bought them right outside of Indianapolis. And so I know this wasn't on a whim. You didn't close your eyes on Zillow and say, ooh, that one. <laughs> I think you sent over a spreadsheet with about 12 tabs on it with the most detailed analytical analysis of the entire United States I've ever seen. So I'd love if you could just kind of walk through your thought process and what inspired you to take such a deep dive before you really made that first investment. Because there's a lot of money on the line. I want to be make sure that all the money that I have worked so hard to earn and to save isn't just going to be a waste on a bad investment. That's a very real possibility. So I initially actually wanted to invest in the Boston area. I was thinking, you know, maybe get something where I could kind of like 
house hack, which is where you live on maybe one side of a duplex and rent out the other. But as I started looking around, real estate in this area is very expensive, very, very expensive. And when I started running the numbers, the cash return, which is really important if you want to hit FI, the cash return is pretty low. And it will take a lot of money to get into a property. So I started looking at other options and I was listening to podcasts and educating myself. I realized some people were able to do this long distance, which is a little bit easier in this day and age when we have access to better technology. It's still very stressful, (laughs) very, very stressful, but that's a small price to pay when, again, you keep that long-term perspective in place. So in regards to how I chose Indianapolis, so when you're looking at the housing market, there are a lot of factors that can make it stronger or weaker. And I wanted to be in an area that had very strong economic fundamentals. I looked at a variety of, of characteristics and compared them all to the national average. So characteristics like household growth. So that's essentially population growth, right? Disposable income growth. Are there more companies coming in and paying people more to live there? Diversity of employment. So if you have, let's say, a town that's supported by one employer, if something happens to that one employer and they move out, then the town is going to struggle. So really wanted different types of employers coming in to support that economy. There's also one big thing is price to rent ratio. So if you buy a house that's say 200,000, could be a pretty nice house in some areas of the country, but it only rents for 1,000 after your mortgage and reserves, savings that you have for like when your roof goes or you need a new furnace, you're not going to be making any money on the back end. So you really want to make sure that you're able to get a good rent in a good area without paying a ton for the house. So after going through different iterations and studying all these different characteristics, I settled on Indianapolis. It was, and what can't be overlooked is the people you can hire. If you can find a good team, a really good property manager you trust, they're worth their weight in gold, you know, and they can really make or break a property. Even if you buy the best property with the best cash flow, if you have someone who isn't ethical and who might lie to you and hire contractors for work that doesn't need to be done because they're getting kickbacks, you're going to lose money, you know? So after taking all those into account, that was why I ended up choosing Indianapolis. Yeah. I'm just curious, what were you using to, you know, you talk about, well, I was able to find this property manager who was ethical and How were you able to find them? Were you using any kind of tools that maybe some people aren't aware of, or is it just referrals? Like, What were the actual ways that you went through and and found some of these places and found some of these people that helped you out? It all comes down to networking, meeting people, talking to people, finding people you can trust. That is definitely easier said than done, especially when you're in real estate, when there are large sums of money trading hands. But it all came down to networking and finding other investors who invested in the area who gave me feedback that I felt was a little bit more unbiased and genuine. And so with that, this spreadsheet is no joke, by the way. I mean, that thing is super, super in-depth. I mean, you should probably <laughs> sell it or something to people because <laughs> it is that good. But um, so what is your master plan? Like how many properties do you want to acquire? Are you trying to get like 100 doors? Are you trying to just get to where your cash flow supports your monthly expenses? Or what's the plan? I want all the properties. You want all the properties. Okay. <laughs> the plan. So as we're talking about financial independence, for me, that means having the ability to make a choice to be able to say every day, hey, I get to go to work. I want to go to work. I'm doing something I want to do rather than I have to. 
I think having the ability to shift that mindset is really, really important. And so I think with where I'm at now, I just want to get to a place where I can replace my current income and stop if I wanted to. Not that I necessarily would, but it's nice to have those options. But you might. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know. That's a little ways away. You know, it takes time to build up a real estate portfolio that is that formidable and takes, it takes a lot of work. It's not a get rich quick strategy by any means. So there will be time and there will be time for kind of internal analysis before I get to that point. And so when you were, you know, I'm thinking back to this, you had this progression from where you kind of had a lower income background and then you're playing professional tennis, your kind of whole lifespan, you probably weren't surrounded with too many people who were kind of following in, in your footsteps as far as being entrepreneurs and looking at retiring early. Have you found it difficult to surround yourself with a group of people who kind of get you and understand this desire (laughs) and who are kind of supporting you? Yes and no. So I think that if you surround yourself with people who genuinely care about you, they will support you with almost anything that you want to reach for. That being said, when it comes to finding like-minded folks, yes, that is certainly not easy. Networks like bigger pockets or like people who listen, who listen to like FI podcasts and go to their websites and post and that sort of thing. That's been a really good source of support for me. I've found some really, really great friends through those avenues. But at the end of the day, like who's going to be living your life, you or them, you know, and I've definitely had people ridicule me along the way. And I've lost friends for having gone this path and for working as hard as I do. But there is not a day that I am not thankful for the work that I put in and the sacrifices I made because it took me from a place where I would not know where my next meal was coming from to a place where I can buy multiple houses in a year, which is kind of crazy. (laughs) That's a huge swing. So just knowing from when we met up and when we chatted, what's like your five-year plan? Because when we (laughs) talked... That's going to be impossible for you to answer. But when we talked, you said you were going to stay at this job for 10 years. And I think that as you get deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole, there is no way in hell you're staying there for 10 years. So I'd love if you even had an idea of what the next few years are going to look like. So I think I said I wanted to stay on this corporate employment path for 10 years, definitely. And after that, it was open to evaluation. I didn't say I was going to leave the corporate workforce in 10 years. Again, I'm all about options, right? I I struggle with the question five-year plan because, again, as an athlete, whenever you reach a certain goal, it's always about like, how do you get to that next step? There's no time to kind of sit around and wait. So I'm just going to keep pushing as hard as I can. I don't know what five years is going to bring. I didn't know two years ago. No, I didn't know three years ago that I was going to be buying houses. You know, things change. And I think it's really important to be open and flexible to whatever comes your way so that you can take advantage of new opportunities and better yourself. So I don't really have a five-year plan except for achieve as much as I possibly can. And I know you talk a lot about that kind of athlete perspective tying into that, you know, drive to continue to improve and to excel and everything. But do you think part of some of this not feeling like you might be comfortable walking away sooner comes from a, a scarcity mindset? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yes. The scarcity mindset is very strong. And I think I was telling you, Cody, last time, last time I saw you, like that scarcity mindset is still so strong that 
when I go to the grocery store and I buy my groceries for the week and I leave and I know I don't have to worry about how much it costs, not that I'm spending a ton of money because I'm frugal. Like that is such a relief to me. It is such a relief still all these years later that I don't have to think about how I'm going to buy my next meal. I don't have to try to figure out how I'm going to pay for a place to sleep at night. You know, those sorts of things. That scarcity mindset is definitely strong. And that is definitely why I am inclined to stay my path for longer until I know that I am well established and I can support myself no matter what life throws at me. I mean, it's tough for people who've never seen that to know what that feels like to say, I never want to go back to that. Like to have that fear in the back of your head, like I will never go back to that. Yeah. Yeah. When you don't have that safety net, it can really drive you strongly one direction or another, but it can also like, if, if you know how to tap into it, it can be just the most amazing motivator. Well, no matter what happens in the next few years, I know that you're going to have a bright future, Sonny. This guy and his dad jokes every episode. <laughs> so punny. But before we move on to the final questions, is there anything that we haven't really covered or talked about that you'd like to share with the audience? I think that if there are folks who are interested in pursuing real estate, it is really important to educate yourself. Take the time and as much time as you need to really understand the nuances of what you're doing because these are large dollar investments and there are plenty of people who have lost a lot of money, you know? So understand the markets, what's driving the markets that you want to invest in, the systems, like what are the levers and the nuances of the strategy that you want to pursue? Like whether it's buy and hold or flip or what have you. And I think it's most important to talk to people so that you can learn, but always be aware that everybody comes into a conversation with certain biases and that's, that's a little bit cynical, but they are going to have certain ideas that they trend towards. And it's just, it's important to not take anything at face value because there are a lot of people who have been taken advantage of. So I think, I think that is, that is very, very important. Trust, but verify. Yeah, exactly. And so on the same thread of talking to people, if people want to reach out to you or just get to know more about you or pick your brain for real estate stuff, where's the best place they can hit you up at? Like a question. I think probably LinkedIn. I'll be quicker to reply to a LinkedIn message. And if you search my first and last name in Boston, you should be able to should be able to find it. Awesome. Well, we will link to that in the show notes for sure. Perfect. Thank you. All right, Sunny. So the other thing we like to ask is for someone who's starting out this journey to financial independence, what's kind of your number one tangible tip you could give them? I think it's always important to know your cash position, regardless of what you want to do or how you want to invest. It's always going to take some sort of investment to get to financial independence and the cash that you have available is going to support that. And again, this probably comes, this is slightly driven from like my scarcity mindset, but I have built, I love spreadsheets, but I have built a spreadsheet where I can always see how much cash I have at any one point for investments. And then I can project that out. So if I have X amount and I need to spend 20,000 on a rehab, then I still have why, right? And I think it's really important as people go in and try to try to piece out money to invest that they also keep in mind that they need a reserve to support themselves and to know what that looks like at all times. And Sonny. Oh God. The last question of the podcast. This is the wild card question. I'm not ready. You're not ready. I hear you saying, oh gosh, <laughs> Justin's not ready, but you're going to answer it. <laughs> I can't. Can I plead the fifth? 
Also, can I caveat this by saying I'm still at work and it's almost 10 o'clock at night and I'm very tired. So I don't know what I'm going to say to this question. There's no escaping. <laughs> there isn't? Are you sure? Okay, Sonny. What is the worst trash talk you've said to an opponent in a tennis match before? <laughs> oh my gosh. That is totally unrepeatable on the air. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, when you, when I, I shouldn't say you, when I compete, I get very angsty. And I don't know, I've probably laughed at people and kind of egged them on at times, but. I can't think of any single thing that I can actually repeat that's being recorded that I can I can share with you. <laughs> you know what? That's probably better than if you had an answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Leaves it up to the listeners' imaginations. And just as a side note, I would love to know. Maybe you don't have anything. What's the strangest trash talk you've ever received? Like I feel like I've heard these stories of just the, like the weirdest trash talk. I mean, so that's also tough because playing on tour there are a lot of foreigners so things get lost in translation so there are <laughs> definitely like i can't think of any one instance but there have been just things said sometimes where like is that is that really an, an insult <laughs> I, i'm lost gotcha. but yeah maybe maybe it's better best if we leave that to everyone's imagination as well. all right sunny well thank you so much for coming on and just sharing your wisdom sharing your story because it's truly an inspiration to other people i mean you didn't have a formal education for what was it a nine-year gap now you're crushing it, buying real estate properties that are thousands of miles away from your home. You're a financial analyst. So just thank you for coming on and sharing your story today. Yes, Sonny, and thank you for giving us that kind of insight into a professional you know, mindset and some of the intricacies that go into that, because that's not a story that you get to hear very often in this financial independent space. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this opportunity. Wow, Cody, that was just another great episode. And it went a lot of different directions from starting on the poor side of things to being a professional athlete to getting into real estate. I mean, we really covered a lot of things there. Yeah, there's a lot of things I just really liked about her story. I mean, she came over from India. Well, she didn't come over from India. Her parents did. They were super poor. She kind of kept this whole frugality mindset. And then she becomes a professional tennis player. I mean, that in itself is super cool. When she's 14, she plays for nine years till she's 23. But what struck me was a lot of people would say, oh, that's awesome. Like she was a professional tennis player. She's crushing it. But she, the way she described it, she was way behind some of her peers at 23 when she quit that professional career. Yeah, because along that way, she said sometimes she might even make $20,000 in a week. But then there's sometimes she might make 100 bucks in a week. And she's having to pay for her travel plus her coaches travel. And some of those like really good coaches make like six figures themselves. And so at the end of it, nine years of playing tennis... She's got no education to show for it. She's got no money to show for it. And she's at the age most people are graduating college. And so when she gets ready to go to college, she has to actually do some kind of you know remedial work that somebody going to college would normally not have to do. Yeah, it's just absolutely crazy. And I mean, you can kind of draw some parallels. Obviously, this is an extreme because she was 14 when she started playing professionally. But even someone my age, who's 22, 23, they just get out of college. All of a sudden, they have $60,000 fall in their lap. They're not ready for that type of responsibility. And I think it's really unfair to those professional athletes, especially young professional athletes. They get set so far behind because they're just not taught these personal finance lessons that you and I are trying to spread. Yeah. And one of the other cool little intersections of finance that I would have never even thought of was when she talked about how towards the end of her career, you know, it was hard to get those sponsorships because it was 2008, 2009. 
the Great Recession and how that disposable income from these companies just wasn't there to support her. And I think sometimes we kind of forget how intricate some of these interactions between different financial situations are. Definitely. And the awesome thing about this story, though, is that it just doesn't end in turmoil. She's not 23 and broke. And she's like, oh, poor me. She is like fiercely focused. When I met with her in person, we met up in Boston. Like she was just so on it, asking like the most detailed technical questions. You could just tell she was a go getter. And clearly that's worked out for her because when she finally did graduate out of that private school and she's 27 looking for that job, she did land a job in corporate finance and she's just been working her way up the ladder ever since. So you can never start too late. Like honestly, you can learn anything at any time. And this is a perfect example of someone who said, no, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to go back. I'm going to get my education and I'm just going to start crushing the game. Yeah, going along with the you can never start too late is if you start late, but you start really fast when you do start, then you can make up for a lot of that lost time. She got that good job and then she started saving up money and getting into real estate. And in 2018, she went from no units to five units. And she did so again with those super technical questions driving that. She looked at population growth, income growth, diversity of employment, price to rent ratio, She made this crazy spreadsheet, really digging down into all these different statistics and ended up on Indianapolis, even though she lives around the Boston area where we do. And Justin, I don't know if you saw that spreadsheet, but it is the most insanely technical spreadsheet I've ever seen in my life to buy residential properties. It's like she probably put 100 hours into this thing. It is absolutely insane. So she's no joke about rental real estate investing. And I'm not sure exactly where she's at right now, but we recorded this a few months back, and I think she might actually be in Indianapolis acquiring another empire of real estate property. So she's just like absolutely crushing it. The corporate job is too slow for her to hit FI, and she's taking the real estate route. And I mean, you just see it time and time again that this is a route that people are absolutely crushing the game, retiring in only a couple of years from. Yeah, and she credited a lot of that success to networking. She said that was the key to help her find good people who manage properties and also just a community to surround herself with of of like-minded people because, you know, not everyone thinks this way. And that's why I think stuff like us doing this podcast or, you know, the Bigger Pockets whole conglomerate, how awesome that is just to get these people together, share that information so that other people can take the best practices, go out there and repeat them. Yeah, Justin, I totally think that. Whoa. What is it, Cody? I think it's a call to action, man. And so today's call to action comes directly from Sunny. And one thing that I really like that she said is that if you're looking to get into real estate, and this can translate into anything else, start to get a little bit technical with it. You can build your network. That's not technical. But after you build your network and kind of understand the market, figure out whatever space you're talking about, it might be real estate, it might not be, understand the technical drivers. Like, why is this a good market from the numbers? Like, the numbers don't lie. And that's something that, I mean, I told you this complicated spreadsheet, man. It was like, at least took 100 hours to build. She's really deep into the numbers. You don't have to go that deep. But just understand the numbers of your industry or the thing that you're interested in. I think that will lend you a huge advantage over the competition. Totally. I mean, those technical drivers are there in any kind of entrepreneurial venture. So definitely get out there and dig into those. But like Cody said, you know, she's out probably buying more properties. So her story is going to continue to expand. And if you want to get all the details from the episode we just had and then look for ways to keep in touch with Sunny, you can do that at thefyshow.com slash Sunny. Now that's S-U-N-I-S-U-N-I. So thefyshow.com slash Sunny. Also, As she mentioned, networking is an awesome part and a very important part of this journey. And you could do that over at thefyshow.com slash community. Thanks for listening. 
see you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. Bye.